Imagine for a moment that I invited you over to my house and we go into my dining room. And in the center of the dining table, you see a cup sitting there. And for some reason, there's something very attractive about the cup and you can't seem to take your eyes off of it. And you've even made up your mind that you want to drink from this cup. But as soon as, and you go and you reach for the cup and you're about to drink from the cup and as soon as you're about to take a drink, I yell, stop! There's poison inside of that cup. You'll die. What happened? Well, what should happen? Hopefully, my warning is going to keep you from making a deadly mistake. We face all kinds of alluring temptations. There's a desire for for money, sex, and power. These are all very strong and can be very attractive to us. When we want some of these things too strongly, they can be toxic and poison to our souls. And so the author of Hebrews, he's writing to the Christian community and warning them of sliding into a relaxed, complacent state with sin. These warning passages that we're going to be looking at today, they've provoked a lot of debate all throughout church history. And one reason it's so controversial is because some people argue that it appears to teach, or they say it does teach, that we genuine believers can lose their salvation. According to those who say we can lose our salvation, Hebrews 6 and 10, they say, are the strongest passages you can go to. Last time, we we talked about the necessity to, to persevere in faith and repentance to the end or you won't be saved. But I argue that if we have genuine faith, God makes sure that we will persevere to the end. Today, we're going to be looking at a couple different things in light of the overall sermon series. We're going to look at how the warning passages in Hebrews are one of God's means for true believers to persevere. And we're also going to answer the question of whether these passages teach that a believer can lose their salvation. I want to say up front that we're going to be staying in the book of Hebrews today. And I may ask you to go to different chapters and look at different verses, uh, maybe up to 20 times this morning. And you can thank Gil for that after the sermon. I want you to see these texts for yourselves. I want to say up front that we're once again going to be looking at things that aren't always the easiest things to hear. But it is in Scripture. And we not need to only understand the, the kindness and grace of God, but the severity of God as well. And we are, as we're going to go in many different places in Hebrews, we're going to bounce around for the purpose of interpreting Hebrews 6 and 10. These two warnings are giving different angles of the same reality. And we should read them synoptically with the, the same view. We should interpret these two passages together. So turn to chapter 6.
and go to starting in, well, get there in a second. But here's the first question we have to answer. Here's the first question. What is the danger that the author of Hebrews warns against? There's a small percentage of people that argue that the danger the recipients faced for committing apostasy is loss of reward. The strong language in Hebrews, it doesn't allow that. Look at verse 8. This is the fate of the one who commits apostasy. This is the fate of the one who falls away. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Listen to the language of its end is to be burned. Now go to uh, chapter 10. It makes it even more explicit there. I'll give you a second. We're going to look at verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Notice that he says there that there's no longer a sacrifice for sins that's not available anymore. The book of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so in verse 26, if there is no sacrifice for sins, there is no forgiveness, meaning that there's not a loss of reward, but wrath. Which is exactly what it states in verse 27. Not a sacrifice, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So just as in chapter 6, there's more imagery of fire. This is not the language of losing reward. This is the language of divine wrath. When someone turns away from Jesus, who is the only sacrifice for forgiveness, there is nothing left but wrath. How does a person, this is the second question, how does a person fall away? How does a person fall away? What leads a person to be exposed to so much light, but then rejected? Here's what I see the answer that that the author of Hebrews gives. A person becomes so hardened by sin, leading them to justify and make peace with sin, which further hardens their heart to such an extent that repentance becomes impossible. And the hardened heart is evidenced by our attitudes toward our attitude towards sacred things. I'll say this another way. Hebrews teaches that when a person has been exposed to the light, knows the truth, but then makes peace with sin, that has a hardening effect on the person's heart. And this hardened heart becomes unresponsive to God's voice and unresponsive to God's commandments. And when sin hardens a person to that degree, repentance becomes impossible. And I don't want to just say that. I want to show you that from Hebrews. So go to chapter 3. We're going to be taking these like one point at a time and then piecing everything together at the end. Verse 13, 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When we sin, we are believing a lie. And the further down the road of sin we travel, the more lies we begin to believe. And this has a callousing and hardening effect, making us unresponsive to the truth of the gospel. So the result of allowing sin into our lives for the first point creates a hardening effect on the heart. This hardening, it leads to unbelief and for us not to be able to obey the voice of God. Where do I see that? The last part, that sin's hardening leads to the inability to obey God's voice, leads to unbelief. Skip down to verse 16. You see, he asked the question, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? So he's talking about the Jews in the Old Testament uh, who saw all kinds of mighty works in the wilderness but rebelled against God. And because he says this in the context of the hardened heart, which you can see in verse 15, it actually connects a hardened heart with hearing and obeying. But because verse 13 is speaking about a hard heart being deceived by sin and having a hard heart, the author is teaching that at the root of disobedience is a heart that's been hardened by sin. If you skip down to verse 19, we see that the other effect of a heart hardened by sin is unbelief. So we see that we are unable to enter, or they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And this, again, is in the context of him talking about a hard heart. So we see that, they, uh, that disobedience and unbelief, they're, they're used almost interchangeably here. So to sum up what we've seen so far is that sin creates a hardening effect on the heart that leads to unbelief and disobedience. And eventually it gets to the point where we begin to make peace with sin. Let's go to chapter 10 starting in verse, or look at verse 26 when you get there. This, this phrase that the author of Hebrews uses, if we go on sinning willfully, deliberately. This willful sin is describing someone who has knowledge about God's commands. He knows what God commands. He knows he's been exposed to the light, but he has made peace with the very sin that he knows is wrong. And so is sinning against the light that he's received. And this hardening that it, it creates, it leads to him falling away. So when we allow sin in our lives, when we play with pet sins over time, we become hardened to that sin. And our sin, it becomes, it becomes more acceptable to us. And we slip into a spiritual state that no longer fights the things that threatens to pull us away from God. And here is why the author of Hebrews warns so strongly against having this attitude, because that's what it is. It's an attitude towards sin. Because the hardening effect that sin has leads to a falling away where repentance becomes impossible. Look at chapter 6. Listen as I read verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible, keep that phrase in your head, it's impossible 
In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. We're going to to come back to this text again, but for our purposes now, Notice that the author describes the state of this person. He's described as being in a place where repentance is impossible. For it is impossible, verse 4, to restore them again to repentance, verse 6. He has become so hardened, he has made peace with sin, and now he can no longer repent. Later on in the book, and like I said, these, these warning passages, they keep coming up throughout the book of Hebrews. He uses Esau, as an illustration of this, turn to to chapter 12 now. We're going to begin in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes it trouble causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. We see here that the author warns his hearers and us to to not be like Esau. And he mentions the, the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis. When Esau was so hungry that he gave up his birthright as the firstborn son for a bowl of stew. What was his birthright? The birthright, it made the the eldest son the headship of the clan, and it also, it gave them a double portion of the family inheritance. And here we see Esau giving away his headship and giving away his inheritance for a bowl of stew. He was in such a state that he cared about satisfying his temporary and fleeting appetite for food than he did for something much greater like an inheritance. And the author of Hebrews points that out because his recipients were in danger of doing that in an eternal way as Esau did with his birthrights. Chapter 10 describes professing believers as beginning to see Jesus himself and the blood spilt for sins as common. Sacred things are just, they're common, they're ordinary. There's nothing special about it. And he's using Esau to urge his hearers to not be like them. He's saying, don't be like Esau and allow yourselves to become so hardened that you trade away something sacred and eternal for the fleeting and the temporary. Don't trade away your reward, your eternal inheritance to satisfy your appetite for sex and greed and the temporary pleasures of sin. Don't trade away Jesus for a bowl of stew. Judas, he he could have been another example. He became so hardened by the the sin of greed that he literally did trade Jesus away for 30 pieces of silver. And the author of Hebrews, he goes on in verse 17 to say, 
For you know that afterward, read verse 17, when you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The way one very, very popular pastor interprets verse 17 is by saying that Esau, he he wanted to go inherit the blessing, the blessing that he gave away, but he couldn't repent of what he did. And he interprets it as, as, as portraying Esau here as someone who's crying about the fact that he wants to repent, but he can't do it. Look at the word it in verse 17. He, he takes the pronoun here, it, uh, in, the, in the phrase, though he sought it with tears, and he takes the word it to refer back to repentance. And, and the portrait this pastor is painting is, is just terrifying. Someone crying for repentance but can't do it. I want to say first that that one part where I agree with him is that Esau couldn't repent. Uh, The clause, for he found no chance to repent, makes that clear enough. But where I disagree with this pastor is I don't believe that Esau was crying because he couldn't repent. Esau, like a hardened apostate, doesn't care about repentance. And, And that interpretation of Esau crying over not being able to repent, it completely separates this teaching from its Old Testament context. Think for a moment about the Jacob and Esau narrative. What does Esau cry about in the narrative? It's not about repentance. He cries in, verse, uh, in Genesis 28 because he cannot receive the blessing that he gave away. Let me, let me read you Genesis 28, verse 38. This is the story the author of Hebrews is referring to. He said, Esau said to his father, Have you one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Esau's not weeping about sins and desiring repentance. He's weeping because his actions have consequences. He's weeping because he doesn't have, uh, he doesn't get to have Isaac's family riches. As Isaac responds to Esau, your dwelling place shall be away from the riches of the land. Esau, like Paul says in Corinthians, has a worldly sorrow of not having a reward which leads to death, rather than a godly sorrow of repentance which leads to life. It's true that the text says he couldn't repent, but he didn't care one bit about repenting. The it in verse 17 refers back to blessing, not repentance. And so just as Esau traded away an inheritance for fleeting pleasures and could no longer repent, so the recipients of this letter in Hebrews, they're in danger of trading away an eternal reward for temporary pleasures and would have been in a state where repentance is impossible. And I want to make this very clear because some of this might be confusing. If you can repent and believe the gospel, you are forgiven. Is that clear? But to summarize what we've seen so far, the answer to the question of how someone becomes an apostate, 
The author of Hebrews says that someone becomes hardened by allowing sin in their lives, they make peace with sin, and it leads to disobedience and unbelief and an inability to hear the voice of God, leading them uh, to fall away and into a state to where they can no longer repent. Here's the important question. Who is the author describing in our letter? Is he arguing that a true regenerate believer can become an apostate? Let's go back to chapter 6. So, Some argue that it is true believers, regenerate believers that fall away, and they'll argue that by pointing out the descriptors used of the person in the text. Listen to how chapter 6 describes them. It says at least five things about about these people in chapter 6, starting in verse 4. They have once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word, and the powers of the age to come. Now, you don't have to turn to chapter 10. I can read it, but listen as I read verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled under the foot of God, under the foot, underfoot the Son of God? And this is the part I want you to see. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified sanctified. So you see, they'll they'll say, this is describing a true Christian. Who else but a Christian tastes the heavenly gift, shares in the Holy Spirit? Who else but a Christian is sanctified? And so they'll say, see, because this passage describes a Christian and because these Christians fall away, that means a Christian can lose their salvation. I want to first state that that even if this is describing a Christian, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone uh, someone can actually lose their salvation. God uses means to keep believers persevering, and warning passages are one way. And it could mean that he's addressing true believers but that he's describing something that can't actually happen, yet at the same time is a danger sign on the road to keep them from going down the wrong path. Many good Christians, they they take that view. Charles Spurgeon took that view that it's sort of hypothetical, it can't actually happen. Uh, My old pastor and scholar, uh, Tom Schreiner, he's wrote a lot about this, and he takes that view. They are in the minority, though. I think the author of Hebrews is describing someone who's been in the church and the covenant and had been around the covenant community so long, has taken in so much light, but never actually repents from sin and believes. I don't think the language used in Hebrews here necessarily has to speak of a believer. It can be used of an unregenerate person who has taken in all kinds of grace and witnessed all kinds of new covenant power and blessings. To to answer this question of of whether he's teaching true believers can lose their salvation, we first have to understand that there are two categories of people in the mind of the author of Hebrews. 
there are two kinds of people, those who, who uh, persevere and those who rebel like in the wilderness. Paul says in Romans, not everyone who is of Israel is of Israel. And in the book of Hebrews, he's talking, he talks about two different hearts in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 3, he claims that there's an unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. And in chapter 10, he claims that there's a heart that draws near to God. And let's look at chapter 6. There are also two kinds of soil. There's a good soil. Let's look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So in this picture that he's, he's painting, uh, the land is referring to a person. And this person, this land, it receives a lot of rain. Lots of rain is coming down on it. This rain refers to all the grace, all the blessings that it's receiving. They hear the word of God. They submit to the spirit and they, and they produce a crop. Meaning that the blessings, the rain, it produces in them. And, and, and the result of this first soil is that they are blessed by God. The second kind of soil is described in verse 8, the second person. But if it, that is the land or the person, bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So the other person described here is someone who also has received a lot of rain. They are a person who for years, and perhaps decades even, have taken in sermon after sermon after sermon. They have taken communion. They have felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to repent, but it never produces anything. There might be some signs of life, but ultimately disobedience and unbelief. These two hearts, these two soils, these two persons, they are the categories of the believer and the unbeliever. The regenerate, responsive heart and the hardened one. And because this discussion of the two soils, it comes immediately after the warning passage in chapter 6, it is this second person, this, this bad soil, this unbeliever that the author of Hebrews is describing in the warning passages. It's not talking about a regenerate believer. So let's look at some of these descriptors. They don't necessarily apply to believers. Having been enlightened... Anyone can come to church and be exposed to the truth by preaching and hearing the word of God. Uh, t- having tasted the heavenly gift, this is echoing back to the, the wilderness generation where they're receiving manna and they're literally tasting the manna that came from heaven. And what's somebody doing when they're taking communion? They're literally tasting the heavenly gift without ever actually becoming converted. What about having shared in the Holy Spirit? Many, many people, I myself for one of them, for many years came to church and, and, and uh, you can have this sense, uh, that you can sense and, and, and have the, you can sense the Holy Spirit moving in people's hearts, you can sense the, the Holy Spirit through the service, the Holy Spirit can move in people, it can illuminate them, it can prompt them to repent, and in that sense, 
can be a partaker of the Spirit by coming to worship with us, but never being permanently indwelled by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit can work in somebody's life up to the point where they're still rejecting salvation. And lastly, this is the most perplexing description. Chapter 10 calls this person who commits apostasy sanctified. And and turn to chapter 10. And this is a problem. This This is a real problem. Because it means if he's being made holy by God, then that also means that he's saved. Look at verse 29, again, just to refresh our memory of what it says. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Some pastors, they take the pronoun he in this phrase, by which he was sanctified, to refer back to Jesus and him being sanctified as the high priest would would sanctify themselves first. And they say this because it allows for an interpretation that doesn't describe the apostate as sanctified and so upholds the doctrine of eternal security. But Jesus is already holy, set apart, and it doesn't make sense to me that he's sanctified by his own blood. So what does it mean then that this person who committed apostasy was sanctified? Look up at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So now we have that word being used again, the word sanctified being used again, but this time it's used in a way that supports perseverance and eternal security. He's saying if you are being sanctified, if you're in the process of being made holy and pure, then you have the status as being perfect right now and forever. You will always be perfect. So how do we put these two verses together? Verse 14 and verse 29. Has this author already forgotten what he wrote just, what is it, 16, 15 verses earlier? There's two ways to interpret this. One could be that he's using the word sanctified in the exact same sense, in the exact same way in verses 14 and verse 29. Both, they would say, are referring to being purified and made holy. But if you take that view, then they're saying, he's saying contradictory things. Verse 14 teaches that a person, that a purified person cannot fall away. Verse 29 would be teaching that a purified person can fall away. This is where the hypothetical view would come in and say, well, yeah, but you can't do it. (laughs) But you see the problem. And so I take the interpretation that he's using sanctified in two different ways. I think he's speaking of purification in verse 14, but simply speaking of being set apart in verse 29. The Israelites in the wilderness who fell away were sanctified in the sense that they were set apart and distinct from the rest of the world. 
but not all of them were, were purified, heart-responding believers. And it's the same here. Someone can go to church, identify themselves with the church, be set apart or sanctified from the rest of the world in that sense, but never actually be made holy and set free from sin by the blood of the Lamb. And so the author is describing in our text is not believers, but someone who has year after year after year received all kinds of grace and have seen all kinds of power of the age to come through the Spirit of God, but continues to reject it and never submit to it. This shouldn't be new to us. We've probably all wondered as young Christians if we've committed the unpardonable sin in the Gospels. The unpardonable sin is not some one-time rejection of the Spirit. It's continually rejecting the work of the Spirit to repent and believe. The Spirit is the one who works faith in you. If you say that you don't believe in Jesus, or if you say Jesus has a demon, as the Pharisees did, the Spirit can still fix that. He can work on your heart. But if you say that about the Spirit of God... You're rejecting his work on your heart. And there's no one else left to help you. Because the Spirit's job is the one to work on your heart, the one to make you repent, the one leading you to repentance. And the people in these warning passages where there's no longer a sacrifice for sin, where there's an impossibility of repentance are people who have continually for decades taking in blessing after blessing and teaching after teaching, but continue to reject the work of the Spirit and calling them to repent and believe. They have committed the unpardonable sin of rejecting the work of the Spirit of God. I have a question. If the author is speaking of unregenerate people in chapter 6 and 10 and not true believers, shouldn't he say something that evidences that? I'll ask another way. If these warning passages speak of unbelievers and are not teaching that believers can fall away, shouldn't we see evidence of that? Look down at verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So once again, there's another warning about God taking no pleasure in someone who shrinks back and commits apostasy. There's no pleasure in that person who shrinks back. And notice that it's even called, the person's called righteous, which sounds like a believer, right? It sounds like some of the descriptors we've seen in our text. But look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Do you see what he just said? Notice the words of those. That's referring, again, to these category, this category of people that I was talking about earlier. They're saying there's two kinds of people in his mind, and he's saying to the Hebrews from the context even, I've seen the fruit in your life, verse 34, and you are not the kind of person who commits apostasy. You're the kind of people who persevere in their faith and live. And if we had to name these two kinds of people, it would be unregenerate people and regenerate spirit and dwell believers. 
You can see something similar after our warning passage in chapter 6 as well. Turn there if you'd like. And look at verse 9. So once again, after giving the Hebrews a serious warning, he writes in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, I don't think you're the kind of person that I just described as committing apostasy. I don't think you're the one that I just described, starting in verse 4. Even though you're wore out, barely running the race right now, barely even holding on, I've seen fruit in your life and I am confident of your salvation. So we see two things. Once again, the category of believers and and unbelievers. And we also see that the fruit in someone's life, whether it's a worthy crop or, a crop or one that bears thorns and thistles, this gives evidence to someone's salvation. I don't have time to ask you to, to go here, but here's another verse that shows the author believed in perseverance and eternal security. We don't have to go outside of Hebrews. We can see it in the book of Hebrews itself. He says in chapter 3, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So not persevering to the end isn't evidence that you lost your salvation. It's evidence that you were never a partaker, never saved to begin with. In fact, he's saying if you were ever a partaker of Christ, that you will keep on in faith and you will hold your original confidence to the end. That's what's going to happen if you did partake in Christ at one point. You're going to keep going. What's his solution really quick or remedy against apostasy? He says it in so many different ways in his letter, but he's saying the same thing. He says, don't harden your heart, chapter 3. Don't presume to get right with God later. If you can hear his voice today, don't suppress it. Don't ignore it. Don't throw away your confidence, chapter 10. It has a great reward. Don't be like Esau. Don't imitate Esau. Imitate the persevering heroes in chapter 11. Cut away the weights and the sin that clings to you so that you can run the race. He also talks about the church community, the covenant community as a means of perseverance. Those who who cut themselves off and do this solo Christianity, they're cutting off one of God's means of persevering to the end. You want a renewed zeal, a renewed passion for God, cut away the things that wear you down. Cut away the things that keep you from running the race. There are seasons where true believers will completely ignore the warning passages when they hear it. True believers, though, will eventually listen to the God-given warnings and call to persevere. Warnings are God's means to help us to persevere to the end. I want to say that I think the apostasy that's spoken of here is, I think it's rare. 
We hear of people all the time who leave the faith and come back at a certain point. Sometimes that's 20, 30 years later. I myself had heard the truth and been to church off and on for 25 years before I ever repented and came to saving faith. I was exposed to so much rain, so much light, and rejected it for 25 years. But then we also hear people like Charles Templeton, who he was, for 20 years he was a Christian, or called himself a Christian, and he went around with Billy Graham professing to be a Christian for 20 years. And then eventually he wrote a book, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. He never came back. And he died in 2001. The point here isn't to look at somebody's life and say, well, they've done this. They've done what, what Mark 3 is talking about. They've done what Hebrews 6 is talking about. They've done what Hebrews 10 is talking about. We can never know. And so we never give up on people. We always call them to repent and believe. What are the things that are wearing you down? What are the things that are keeping you from not just jogging or walking along the path? What are, what are the things that are keeping you from running the race? As one pastor said, quit looking at something and asking if this is just a sin, if, if this isn't a sin, then that means I can do it. That is the lowest bottom of the barrel question you can ask, is this a sin? Ask yourself the question, does this help me run? And if you're here today, or listening in, and you've listened to countless sermons, you've been to church, but you've never made a commitment to Jesus because that commitment requires you to turn away from a, a sinful lifestyle, I want to plead with you this morning to let go of the temporary and fleeting pleasures of sin for something much greater. Stop rejecting the light. Stop resisting the Spirit. Go to him this morning, this moment, right now. If you can repent, he will forgive you. He will put his spirit in your heart and you will never fall away. It ultimately depends on God. And he can forgive you because of his son's work taking your punishment for sins on the cross. Imagine we're back in my dining room and you're staring at the cup of poison that I just warned you not to drink. An apostate, he would hear that warning and drink the cup to the dregs. He knows what'll happen. He doesn't care. A believer would hear that warning and they would not go anywhere near that cup. And that's what these warning passages are for, to make sure that we never go near the cup, to make sure we don't begin to fall into willful sin. 
Yes, we don't always hear the warnings and take it to heart, but if we ever get to that point of being so slow that we're barely running the race, God will make sure that we, through his spirit here, listen and obey because he is the one that makes us persevere to the end. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your loving, gracious discipline and, and caring about our souls so much that you care enough to warn us. But we also thank you so much that there is so many promises that promise that you will keep us from stumbling, that you who began the good work in us will bring it to completion, that nothing can rip us out of Jesus' hands that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come can ever separate us from you. We are thankful that if we believe we will go on to the end and we hear from 1 John that if somebody does fall away, he says they went out from us because they were never one of us to begin with. And so Father, we pray and we urge and we plead with people to to turn to the light, to turn to Jesus, repent, believe for the first time, and you will bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.